you have your Bibles this morning, if you would, open it up to Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at a crucial text in the history of the church, and it's when the Jewish church and the Gentile church had to decide how they're going to coexist as one. You know, growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, I was made aware of all of the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 70s. But when you're a child, you don't, you don't really process those stories. You learn about them, and then you just kind of go on through life, and as a child, it's hard to, to comprehend some of the things that took place. So I went to a high school that was probably 80% white, 20% African American. I was still a part of the majority culture. I left and went to Alabama, which was a little bit more diverse, but still, for the most part, I am still a part of the majority culture. And it wasn't until I moved to New Orleans in 2009 that for the first time in my life, I was not a part of the majority culture. New Orleans is about 60% African American, 25% white, 10% or 5% Hispanic, Asian American, something like that. So New Orleans was my first experience being in a place where I was not automatically like almost everybody else around me. And so I feel like in this time of division and turmoil that we are in in our country, that we really need to take a look at what the Word of God teaches on the topic of race. Did you know, though, that the Bible not one time ever mentions the term race? We have no idea what race Adam and Eve were. We have no idea what race Jesus was or Paul or Peter. The New Testament specifically always talks in terms of ethnicity. It never talks in terms of race. And I know as I approach such a weighty topic this morning. There might be people in this room listening or people at home watching that are asking, why do we need to bring up this issue again? Aren't we past racism? But the reality is, oftentimes the church has not done enough to speak to this very issue. You see, we're very quick to speak up and fight against abortion or same-sex marriage, or pornography, or poverty. But there have been many times throughout the church's history where we have not done enough to talk about the issue of race and racial reconciliation as Americans in this country. And so today what I'm going to be sharing with you is not my opinion. Hear me this morning. I approach this issue with great humility and I am not judging anyone in this room. I simply want to share with you what the Lord has laid on my heart. And it comes specifically from the Word of God. This is not my opinion on it. This is what the Word of God clearly teaches. So we're going to be in Acts 15 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Beginning in verse 1. This is what Luke tells us, the author of Acts. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, 
you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles, who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Two points this morning. Can you believe it? Just two. Number one. I want you to see from this text that we as human beings are prone to divide, not unify. Because of our sin nature built into us, we are prone, we prefer to divide rather than unify. To give me some context of what's happening here. Paul and Barnabas have just returned from their first missionary journey. And they go all over the place. They go to Cyprus and Perga and Iconium and Pamphylia 
in all of these places. And as they're going, Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles respond in faith. But guess what else happens? The Gentiles respond in faith as well. And they weren't really sure how God was going to act or what was going to happen. But when they get to the end of this first missionary journey, they realize that they are now a church made up of people from different ethnicities. On one hand, you have Jewish people who adhere to a strict diet, who have been circumcised, who are strict monotheists. And then on the other side, you have these Gentiles who grew up not having to adhere to any special diet, who were used to all sorts of sexual immorality, who are used to worshiping all of these foreign gods. And once they become believers in Christ, Paul and Barnabas have to decide, how are we going to merge these two groups that are vastly different, culturally, religiously, politically, economically? And that's why... They have what we now call in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Conference or the Jerusalem Council. They have to decide how they as the church of Jesus Christ are going to move forward as one, not having a Jewish church over here and a Gentile church over here. So how do they go about doing that? Well, like any good church would do, they call a meeting. That's what we're good at. And so they gather believers from both the Jewish church and the Gentile church, and they have this discussion about how can we as the church of Jesus Christ move forward as one, even though there are these vast differences between us. You see, in verse 1, we see one of the main problems as to why this meeting was even called. The text tells us that certain people came from Judea, And we're telling these Gentiles that if you are saved, you will be circumcised. Now, we know the history as we've been going through the Old Testament this year, that every Jewish person was circumcised as a sign that they were set apart for God, that they were God's chosen people. But now, in the New Testament age, it is no longer circumcision that sets you apart It's the Holy Spirit living in your heart. And so these men from Judea bring a pretty bold statement when they are telling these Gentile brothers that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. You see, what these men from Judea struggled with is oftentimes what you and me struggle with. We like surrounding ourselves by people that are like us, that look like us, that talk like us, that behave like us, that believe the same things as us politically, religiously. You see, none of us in this room today have to try to be around people that are like us. That comes naturally to us. What we have to try to do is be around people that are not like us. In the spring of 2011, I made a decision that would change the trajectory of my life forever. We as a church in New Orleans were thinking through ways that we could strategically reach people in our community. And so we decided that we were going to go into some of the neighborhoods in New Orleans and we were going to start a, basically a sports program 
So we identified one particular playground in New Orleans that had very little parental support, very little resources, and we went in and we began coaching these kids in baseball and basketball and football. This particular neighborhood that we went into was largely, almost exclusively, African-American. Now, I signed up to do this because I love sports and I love kids. But did you know that at that point, that was the first time in my life that I had ever intentionally chosen to go and be around people that were not like me, that were not from the same class as me, that did not have the same skin color as I did, that perhaps didn't believe the same thing I believed politically or religiously. And so we went in and we made the decision that we are going to intentionally invest in these kids. And I was brought face to face with my own prejudices, stereotypes, and preconceived biases about people that did not look like me. Basically, I was brought face to face with my own racism that lived in my heart and in my mind. And I want to challenge us as a church this morning. I want to challenge you to be intentional about being around people that are not like you. Whether that be the color of their skin or the class that they come from or the political ideology that they believe. Challenge yourself to go and be around people that don't always agree with you or look like you or behave like you do. Because as I told you at the beginning, we are prone to divide, not unify. What we can do is when we interact with people that come from different backgrounds, we are brought face to face sometimes with preconceived ideas and notions about a particular group of people that we never otherwise would have known unless we sat down with them and have the difficult conversations. And part of the reason this is so hard is because we live in a world where it's very difficult to have those conversations because we're fearful of what someone might think about us or we're fearful that something we say might go viral. But we have to be willing to take the risk of going and having conversations with people and loving people and investing in people that are different from us. Number two, I want you to see that the Spirit of God that lives inside all believers unifies, not divides. So when Paul and Barnabas arrive, this debate begins to ensue about what are we going to do with these brothers and sisters who have professed faith in Christ, but they're not circumcised. They don't eat the same things we do. They don't come from the same place that we do. How in the world is it possible for us to be one church? And it's Peter himself who stands up and he says, these brothers and sisters are worthy of hearing the good news. And they have received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Should these people that are different from these Jewish brothers and sisters, why should they be able to hear the good news? Because Jesus Christ died for them too. He died for everyone. 
And so Peter stands up, and this is a pivotal moment in his leadership when he stands up and says, these people deserve to hear the good news, and they deserve to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. The same Holy Spirit that was in these Jewish believers is the same Holy Spirit that was in these Gentile believers. And every single person is important because every person has been made in the image of God. You see, these Jewish believers, these men from Judea, were trying to force these Gentile believers to act a certain way, to live up to their cultural standards of what they thought was right, of what they thought people should behave like and talk like and look like. But what that does is that flies in the face of being created in the image of God. Because God has created all ethnicities uniquely in his image. And so to try to force one ethnicity to behave in a way that aligns with another ethnicity is to undercut that key doctrine of the image of God. God has made every single person completely unique. And regardless of the color of their skin, of their politics, of their economic class, we are all one in Christ. I didn't finish the story after we started coaching those kids in the neighborhood. We decided that we were going to get into their homes and get to know their families and begin bringing them to church with us. Now, most of these kids had never been in a church service maybe Easter Sunday, maybe Christmas Eve, but they had never been a part of a body of believers before. So we started out with three or four kids. It was just a handful of them, and it grew over the years. But it was a learning curve because these kids had never sat through a Sunday school class. They had never sat through a kid's worship service. Some of them came from places where there was not a lot of structure in their routine And there were growing pains for us as a church. There was frustration on their end. There was frustration on our end as we tried to learn how to be one in Christ. Later on that summer, after we began taking them to activities and bringing them to church, we made the decision that we were going to take them off to camp with us. We went to a camp for third through sixth graders. And this was the first time many of those boys had ever been outside of the city of New Orleans in their entire life. So we took them off to camp, and it was at a college campus. And if you've ever been a part of any kids' camp or youth camp, it is highly structured, down to the minute. You have breakfast, you have Bible study, you go to recreation, you have worship, you have lunch, you go to recreation. And for us that are used to routines and structures, that's not that difficult. But many of these boys were not used to this type of schedule. And so that week, we had a lot of problems. A lot of problems. Trey was with me on this trip. He came as a chaperone. Now, I didn't mention this, but this was the first time that church that I was at ever gave me responsibility over a group. The first time I was the leader who left and was in charge of a group of children and a group of chaperones. One night, 
one of our kids was just so tired and not used to that schedule that, that he ran away. And for about 30 minutes, I told you we were on a college campus, we couldn't find him. We didn't know where he was. Word had gotten back to the church that me, the one in charge, was struggling. And that perhaps some reinforcements needed to be brought in. It was a very, very stressful week. But those kids heard the gospel that week. And over time, seeds were planted. And I'm happy to say that all of those kids that went with us that week are now believers in Jesus Christ. I got back that week and I had some parents call me. They wanted to schedule a meeting with me because they were concerned about some things that happened on the trip. These were nice people. They didn't mean any harm. They just wanted to express their opinion about some concerns that they had. So I had the meeting with them. We talked about it. And I'll never forget this phrase. The man walked up to me and he said, I love what we're doing with these children, but I think it would be better if we ministered to them on their turf. Now, I understand that he probably didn't realize what he was saying. But what he was saying is, we need to have a church for them and a church for us. We need to have, just like Paul and Barnabas are dealing with here, maybe it would just be easier if we had a church full of Jewish people and a church full of Gentile people. It would be a lot easier. There would be less conflict. We wouldn't have to deal with all of these intercultural differences. Could God have worked if there was a Jewish church and a Gentile church? Of course he could have. There is no telling how God works. He could work any way that he wanted to. But fortunately, at the Jerusalem conference, James stood up and he said, you know what? We're gonna be one church. And we're gonna have differences and we're not going to see eye to eye with each other all the time. And both sides are going to have to learn about the other side. And we're going to have to have periods of patience and understanding and periods where we listen to one another and get a better idea of what our brothers and sisters from this group deal with and what our brothers and sisters from this group deal with. And fortunately, what we see in Acts 15 is that the church made the right decision that we are not going to be a church comprised of Jewish people and a church comprised of Gentile people. We are all going to be one in the body of Christ. Due to my experiences in New Orleans, I began to be very interested in how the church can come together, coming from different backgrounds, race, political backgrounds, whatever differences you want to bring up, cultural backgrounds, and so I began to do a lot of study about the American church's complicity with racism. I read some books that made me aware of my own stereotypes and my own racist tendencies that I had in my heart that I was not even aware of. And so in doing research, I came across this sermon that was actually given just a couple of years ago. And I want to read an excerpt from it to you. And I quote, when Southern Seminary invited Dr. Martin Luther King to preach in chapel, Baptist churches 
embargoed donations. Dr. Duke McCall, who was president of Southern Seminary at the time, recalled that after Dr. King preached, that he heard of a Baptist layman, a member of the First Baptist Church of Dothan, Alabama at the time, who was raising $50,000 for a mass mailing to all Southern Baptist Convention churches to fire Dr. Duke McCall as president. I'm not sharing that story with you to shame anybody. I'm sharing that story with you to tell you and to plead with you and to encourage you that there is a better way forward as the church of Jesus Christ. You know, in the first century, the Christians startled the Roman world with their understanding of identity. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the Roman world at that time, your ethnicity, your race, determined what God you worshipped. So if you were from this part of the empire, you worshipped this God. If you were from this part of the empire, you worshipped this God. But when the Christians came on the scene, they said our God is the God of all people. From every tongue, tribe, and nation, we as Christians declare that anyone who comes to faith in Christ can worship him together in unity as one. So whereas in the Roman Empire, religion was based on race, in Christianity, the grace of God is available to all ethnicities and to all races. Therefore, what we learn is that grace was more important than race. You know, this morning, as we, as we think through these challenging times in our country, if in your heart, when you hear stories of protests or stories of African Americans who have died at the hands of police brutality, and it is your tendency to roll your eyes or to get frustrated or to say, I think we should just move past that, I would just challenge you to ask yourself, why is that your initial response? Why can we not just come alongside our brothers and sisters and empathize with them and say, look, I don't understand everything that's going on, but as your brother and sister in Christ, as somebody who Jesus has told me to go and be a good neighbor, let me come alongside of you and learn. So today, in our time of response, I just want us to examine our own hearts. If you draw a one-mile radius around this building, you are going to see that we are largely surrounded by African-American men and women. And I know there are churches out there that many of them already attend, but it might mean that if we are truly going to reach our one-mile radius, then we need to be ready to be a church that can deal with the friction 
of intercultural conflict. Understanding where our brothers and sisters who come from a different background as us, what their experiences are. And in the process, God will bless our efforts to bring brothers and sisters in Christ united in our diversity. Let's pray together. God, as I've already shared this morning, in my own heart, I've had to deal with my own prejudice, my own stereotypes, my own racist tendencies that were in my heart and that were in my mind that honestly I had never really dealt with or considered until I was around people that were not like me. And God, I know you have forgiven me of those sins and your grace is always available to me and for that I am thankful. God, it is such a divisive time in our culture. But we as the church of Jesus Christ, we offer grace. We live in a world where one mistake, you are written off forever. But in this room, the God that we serve says, in spite of your mistakes, my grace is sufficient for you. So that's what we want to celebrate today. God, show us sin in our life. Whether that be racism, lust, anger, malice, impatience, bitterness, envy, whatever sin is in our heart and mind today, may we use this time to come before you, confess it, and receive your grace that is available to us. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.